Welcome back to the Shema Podcast and part two of What is Torah with Rabbi Nagel. Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. All right, that clears up a lot. So basically all these other sources are tied in are on one of these four levels. On one of these four levels from that written Torah. Exactly. But as you said, some things are not referenced to the written Torah. They're only found in the oral transmission like that to fill in or black. For instance, right. And does Midrash fall under that as well that came from Moshe that he shared? I mean, obviously the color around what was happening, the commentary in the Torah was not being taught in the tent of meeting because the written Torah was not given to the Jewish people until the end of that 40 years before they went into the land of Israel. So obviously giving color to the what was going to be happening to them in advance doesn't make sense. So. Yes, I want to give you, okay, That was the, that's another part of your question that I think is confusing for most people and it's really important to just get, get a good like, clarity on that. So here's the way I, I, I see it. And again, I, you know, maybe you ask different rabbis, you'll get different answers. I'm just... I just want you to, I'm going to quote for you a section of a Talmudic passage that talks about a a dispute between the rabbis regarding the last nine verses of the Torah. I'm not sure if you heard about this dispute, but it's a very big question because starting from the ninth to last verse, it talks about Moses dying. And it's a big problem. Who wrote it? Can Moses write that he died? And if he wrote that he died, then he's writing a lie? Because he didn't die because he's writing it. How can this be? Right, because okay. the Torah is only truth. Right, it's true. It must be true when it's written. It can't be, you know, it can be a future event, but it says that he died. Died already. Yes. Okay? It's not like he will die as soon as I finish the sentence. I'll die. You're like, I'm about to? No, no, I, I, he's dead. So that's the... So, there is a dispute as to who wrote it. One opinion is, is that the last nine verses had to be written by Joshua because he, Moses could not have written it. The problem with that, the theological problem with that is, is that the Torah must be complete for Moshe. It's called Torah's Moshe, the Torah of Moses. It can't be that, it's, that he wrote an incomplete Torah. Right. And this is the conflict that, that both sides have very good points, but there's no happy, there's no middle here. There's no middle ground until the last opinion. The last opinion says that uh, Moses wrote the last nine verses bidema, dalid mem ayin. Most people take to mean with tears. And then Joshua filled it in with ink. That's one take. How does that help? Okay, how does that answer the question? So I believe that it's the Vonagon who says it, who explains this. The Reb Eliyahu Kramer, he was alive in the 1700s, one of the greatest geniuses of the Jewish people from all time. Okay, just to tell you who he is. Anyway, this is, I believe, his explanation. He says that the Torah is has multiple layers of meaning, and in addition to that, the Torah is. Here's the story. Okay, I'm just give you a, a background. Every letter of the Torah, from beginning to end, 
is on one layer, like I explained before, there's a layer of secrets. Names of God are interlaid in the, in the words. There's hints to the understanding and the deeper meaning of what God is all about that's hidden in the text. Okay, When Moses wrote it down, according to the Quran, what he did was he wrote it mixed up, meaning without the separations of the words. All the words were together, and it, was, it did not have the meaning of Moses died, okay? Because it was one string. And what Joshua did is he pulled them apart into the meaning afterwards, which gives to me a little bit of a, a, like a deeper understanding of the Torah altogether. I just find this in, enlightening in general, that there's, there's, like I said, multiple layers to the Torah. The secrets of the Torah exist. It goes back to, this answers another question that many people have. When Moshe went up to, he went up to heaven to receive the Torah. So the angels were like, Torah? You can't have the Torah. We, we, we're keeping the Torah. The Torah's been around, you know, even before the world existed. No, we're not giving it up. God said to Moses, can you give them an answer? And he's like, they'll kill me. They'll burn me up. So he said, hold on to my throne of glory and give them an answer. The answer that Moses gave is he said to them, he says, tell me, what does it say in the Torah? Honor your father and mother? Tell me, do you have a father and mother? How are you going to honor your father and mother, you angels? You have no father, you have no mother. What does this mean to you? He went through, steal? How could you? You have no desire to steal. How can that even be an obligation for you? Who's the Torah for? It's for human beings. We need the Torah. And the angels had to give it. They turned around and they gave it to Moshe. And they gave gifts to Moshe. They recognized the veracity of what he said. Question is, and this is like a Talmudic passage, like, what were they thinking? How could they think that the Torah should be for them? When clearly it was directed to, towards human beings. Everything written in the Torah deals with our struggles, where we are in our lives, and telling us what we need to do and how we need to train ourselves to behave. So if, what were they thinking that, no, like, we got to keep the Torah. It's like, you're going to give it to man? Man is so full of errors and terrible deeds, and they don't deserve such a holy book. What were they thinking? So the answer is, is that they were taking the Torah only on the hidden layer of the Torah, which did have meaning for them. The secrets, the names of gods. In that level, it was very applicable to them. But when you separate the words into the actual pshat, the simple meaning, it belongs right here on earth. And that's, to me, a very insightful... Again, it ties in together that there's multiple layers of meaning in the Torah, one that really fits very nicely for the angels, but the primary, the main simple text is clearly for us. Now, what does it mean that the Torah was given to Moshe? And like, at what point was the Torah given? So that's important to remember when we talk about Torah, and I explained the first word that I said, that Torah means teaching, we really subdivide that into the 613 commandments of the Torah. That's really what we mean when we say the Torah was given to Moshe at Harsinai. Torah, i going to give you one of the hints of the Torah, the remeth, the numerical value of Torah. Every, as we know in Hebrew language, the, the letters have a value. So the value of the letter Tuf is 400. Vav is 6. Resh is 200. And He is 5. 
So that's 611, okay? We're short two. Okay, so Torah is 611, which we take to mean the 611 commandments. As we say, Torah tziva lanu, Moshe, Moshe gave us 611. And like you said in your intro, that we heard from God, two. I am Lord your God, took you out of Egypt, and there shall not be any other God before me. That is the two from God, which in a total, in total, it adds up to the 613 commandments that we have. So that's what was given to Moshe at Har Sinai, with all its details. How did it? How is it written? Is is actually not clear in my mind. Okay, I don't know at what point was it written. As it went down, Moshe wrote it down, or was it only dictated in the final form at the very end of Moshe's life, and that was when we got the Torah scrolls. But what was Torah at the point in time, till it was actually written down, was the laws. And the laws were at a certain, basically at that point, strictly oral. It was not really written, except for what was written in the Ten Commandments, which was written on the Ten Commandments. But the Torah scroll, as we have it, was written by Moshe at the very last day of his life. And there's a description in the Midrash about he wrote one for every single tribe, a separate one, on the very same day. He wrote an entire Torah for every tribe so they can, you know, time expanded for Moshe, for his needs to have a handwritten Torah by Moshe given to each tribe. That was authentic, okay? And that is amazing. That's, that's, the, that's the Torah that we have today. So a couple of things. One, when you were talking about the different levels of Torah and why the angels wanted it, one of the things that came to mind is that just like there's four levels of Torah, there's four worlds, starting with the, the, the world that's closest to Hashem with more revelation. As the revelation dims, it becomes, to get to this world, the world of Asiya, the world of action. And it seems like the Torah is corresponding to that. So that's why the angels may be in, in, in their sphere. Had, there was a stuff above them that was important for them, but obviously the, those of us who need it the most with all those levels. It's almost like there's a truth that as it moves into a physical world that is most distant from God, it takes on different forms. When your world of space and time... It takes on a very real practical meaning right here on this earth. Well, that's a new thought for me. I like it, okay? Again, uh, that concept of what you, you're talking about, of the world that's closest to God, and those are really Kabbalistic concepts, not discussed in, uh, at least openly, in the Talmud, okay? Everything, like, and there's layers, even, this is important to understand, even in the Talmud, there's layers of meaning as well, even though it's the discussions of the rabbis. But if you uh, study some of the Hasidic teachings, you'll see the same Talmudic passage and you'll, your mind's going to be blown. It's like, that's what he saw here? Like, this is a case of an ox goring and, what, you know, it's a very practical law. It's like, no, 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 there's a whole different layer of meaning that's being conveyed in this uh, Mishnah. Okay. This last Shabbos, well, it started several Shabbos ago. Sort of ties back into this about this, like there's these deep, deep levels, but at the end, as they filter all into this world, it comes down to all these minutiae and decisions and acts we make. So several weeks ago, so we learned our dog was Muktzah, and 
my family was distraught. It's like, so what do we do? They love our little dog. They like to pick her up. So I went and met with Rabbi Lazinga on Shabbos. And it's like, I need to know all the halakha on a pet. He's like, I'll, I'll teach everything to you. You ready? He's like, don't move the pet on Shabbos. So I said, I, I'm pretty certain I can come back and give that lecture to my family. So I told them. And so we got this dog ramp because the dog always sort of like, you know, she's trained us well for six years that when she turns around and backs up towards us, that means that we're supposed to now pick her up and put her on the chair or on the bed. So we got this ramp that we could adjust. And so she could learn to, and we taught her how to get up on the chair or get up on the bed, right? So last Shabbos, she's doing this now. She's going up and down. She's not upset. My family's happy. And they sort of say like, it's so great. We taught her dog like this pet trick. And I said, no, I don't think we're getting this right. What we just learned to do was to teach us to become closer to God because now we're not moving the dog on Shabbos. And I don't quite intellectually understand, but that is exactly what we did, even if we don't recognize it. Would you agree with that statement? I think it's a very important to the perspective of what, what we're doing exactly. And every... I'll give you a, I'll give you a question that that was asked to me many many years ago and maybe it's something that's maybe it's another discussion for a podcast. And this is like the question that, you know, people who are a little bit cynical, does it really matter to God that which, you know, that I do this minutia or don't do this minutia? And that's a hard question because like God has, you know, bigger fish to fry as I say. In other words, he is, does he really does he focus on the tiniest detail? Is that and, and to me, I don't know the answer, but I do know is that our ability to focus on the tiniest detail, for God's sake, surely gives God uh, an amazing, warm feeling of, wow, look at that dedication. Look at how far he is going in this for his understanding of my will. And for that, that's the big picture. That's in my mind. And that's really what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Because we can't detect God with any of our physical senses, but we intellectually know through the Torah that basically in essence exists within God and he created us out of love for us. So how do we physically express that? It's by figuring out a way to not pick up the dog and put it up on the chair on Shabbos because that that's a violation of one of the laws of Shabbos. And so it brings us great joy that we can actually do a physical action that acknowledges his existence. So let's get back to the 613 mitzvot. Why were they not given in a manual type form? Very clear, very concise. When it comes down to practical application, don't do this, do this. Why are they all intertwined throughout a, in a narrative fashion? Is it because basically what you said earlier that he, because he's God, he knew, like, I can compact all this information into this one set of texts that can fit on a book, on your bookshelf, or on a Torah scroll. And then this exercise of deciphering it all is what allows us to understand the text more. Is it is something like that? Okay, so I think that's certainly a part of it. But it's, it's a dual, to me, there's a dual factor in, involved. By putting it through a narrative, it the connections to the story can draw people in in a much greater way. There's a reason why nobody reads law books for fun. Right. Because 
they're terribly boring, okay? And even lawyers only read it when they need to, even though that's their life. So the Talmud is studied by Jews all over the world for fun. For fun. Right. Even the minutia, they have tremendous joy in delving into the depths of understanding because it's written in this fashion. The Talmud is written in argument form, which, and it's not just laying out facts. And the Torah is also super engaging because it's also not conveyed in that way. It does state the laws, but it's interspersed with stories, as is the Talmud, and interspersed with moral lessons, which is also so crucial to life. So much of what the Torah stands for, what it's all about, is conveyed many times not in the law or in the detail of the law, but in the narrative. The narrative is so teach, so such a teachable part of what Torah is. You know, most of the time, the rabbi, when he's getting up to speak, he's not focused on the minutia of the law. He's focused on what message is there for me in my life, for my interpersonal relationships that I see from this section. And that's that we can carry with us to every aspect of our life. And, you know, the, the full gamut of human experience is comes between the Torah and the stories of the prophets and so on. These are things that give enrich our lives. So on the one hand, that's a very strong part of it. The power of the narrative, the power of the its ability to draw people in. On the, the other part is, is that the... It, it, when when the Talmud really does is we have the text, we have the oral tradition, and what we're our job is to do is to draw the line. Where does the oral tradition find its source in the in the in the written law? And drawing that line back, besides for being a very powerful intellectual exercise, and when we read the text, we actually can be understanding the nuances and minutia of the law. As we know it, but it so that's one um, the the that same the Vilnagon that I mentioned before when he got older he would only study the the Torah scroll because everything's in it and he was able to see all the Talmudic passages while reading that one line in the text. Okay, so <laughs> that's what you get to when you reach that level. But the point being is is that the exercise is itself so powerful that when you read this text, you're automatically connecting back to the Talmudic passage that deals with the text. And the exercise in drawing that line enriches the understanding and gives clarity to the, line, to the blurred part of where's the, where's the line end. Where is the law, which is part of the law, which is, you know, which is required and which is not required. What must be done, what must... Well, if I understand where it derives out of the text... That context can give shed light on these these hard questions, which is really to me a little bit of a segue to one of the things that you brought up in in your intro. It was about the Tesla. You want to speak out the question? Yeah, comes down to when I study halacha, and a lot of the halacha is around how to navigate electrical appliances, and of course that's not part of the oral transmission. It wasn't discussed in the Tenta meeting as Moshe taught it. To the Jewish people about Tesla or about a Shabbos oven, is that considered Torah? Because it didn't necessarily come from 
Mount Sinai. Well said. So here's the direct, concise, clear answer to this question. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Now, one thing we need to realize that although uh, Tesla wasn't mentioned in the Torah directly, but God is eternal. God knew what's going to be. So he's going to have to give somewhere in the Torah text a principle. And based on our powers of comparing and contrasting, we're going to find information that's going to shed light and give us clarity in a law. I want to give you an example. Outer space. How does one observe the Sabbath in outer space? When is Sabbath in outer space? The question boggles the mind. It's impossible. The concept of being in outer space clearly was not possible in the days of the Talmud. How can they have dealt with it? So the answer is, is that you're right that the Torah could not have written about something that we could not connect even to at that time. We wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense to us if you know, it would be talking about something that, that was not in their experience. But there is something that was in people's experience that sheds light on this topic. The Talmud discusses what happens when a person gets lost in a desert and loses all sense of time, and how does he determine what to do. And that law is what's going to be the law for somebody who's lost their sense of time, lost their connection to our basis for time. And it's going to be the same. Do you understand? Yeah, wow. So that so that application would apply to a Jew living in North Pole and or outer space on a space station. Exactly. Exactly. Amazing. Right. So although the it's going to be based on the a power of comparison and recognizing the root of the law, which we are which gets clarified to us by drawing the line to the source in the Torah text, the written law, to the oral tradition, as we know it, as we know it from our experience, from how our fathers taught it to us, from how our teachers taught it to us. And understanding the line clarifies the root principles. And once you have the root principles, you will be yourself able to apply it to an experience that could not have been fathomed at the time that it was written, but is something that's in our current reality. Okay, that makes sense. So the so the, the principles of the Torah laid out those that were extrapolated and applied to the halakh we have today that, no, you can't drive your Tesla on Shabbos. Right, exactly. And as you were talking earlier, too, about the, the whole construct, it made me think about that when things are, are, when information is sort of basic and delivered to you, and it's just a question of memorizing some facts, it doesn't really change you. You know, it's when the, the, what you're trying to learn is complex and you're trying to work your mind and understand it and you have to spend a lot of time contemplating it. That type of knowledge you gain from learning changes who you are. It creates a different connection. And in this whole idea of, you know, I've heard, I think Rabbi Lazine was, this was mentioned in the book he was teaching before Shabbos, that when one's studying Talmud it's, and they're learning these concepts, it's like kissing God. Have you heard this phrase before? I don't know if it came from a lecture he gave. I'm um, not even familiar with that particular expression, but I get it. Because God is purely spiritual and our intellect is spiritual. And when our mind struggles with Torah to where we get it and we understand it, it's that, that is our, that's a major connection point. 
Absolutely. The creating of those connection points is the, and the excitement of discovery is part of what's so pleasurable. Like I said, to me, Talmud is the greatest pleasure one can achieve in his, you know, it's, it's such a joy to learn because of its ability to actually, in this muddled world, to give clarity, at least in some area. Right. And that ability of like saying that aha moment that was built on our means of discovery, of being confused, seeing conflicting ideas, and coming to that resolution of clarity, and that brings us to a joy of, wow, I, it, I, this is the Word of God. This is clarity. But that not that what, that, the whole thing that struck me was, is that I know for those of you who study like Talmud all the time, it is so immensely pleasurable. I know like when Rabbi Yokoff will be first start teaching out the class in Humble, my friend David Ask and I were like, you know, we never, we didn't know what yeshiva was, but we knew he was like, he was brilliant. And we we're asking him, so where did you go to college to learn all this? He's like, well, I went to yeshiva. We're like, so what type of degree did you get there? He's like, didn't. I just went to study Talmud. He's like, well, how long? There's no like, well, how long do you have to study though before you get your rabbi degree? Like we're thinking from a secular perspective. And he's like, no, you just go there and study until you decide to do something else. And he goes, well, what's the maximum time? It's like, well, some people went there when they were teenagers and they're a hundred and something now and they're still there studying. So I knew like there's something about it that is so pleasurable, but like, we were just sort of talking about when when I heard the study of Talmud is creating that type of similar. You're you're knowing him better and what his intent is, and that's where that pleasure is, and why people are so addicted to studying Talmud all the time. Absolutely, it's um, so uh, you said it very well. But uh, it's um, it there's another factor about it besides for the ability to connect to understanding. It's transformative if you want to try and apply it to your life, what you're learning. So it's you're a totally different person when studying with the right attitude of like, I am learning this to want to understand God's will so that I can with a great so I can act with in accordance with God's will. So I'm trying to change myself and mold myself with the Torah's way of thinking and the Torah's value system and applying it to myself. And that is a whole different component of the pleasure of Torah because that seeing, like, you know, that's the, that's the different dimension. You're a different dimension from before. There's the sensitivity to others that the, that the Torah teaches that's augmented by the analysis of the opposing opinions and understanding the validity on opposite views and just that alone that process and working on that process can change your life change your life for the better you know i learned a long time ago never to speak lashon hara always say the truth definitely don't speak in a crude fashion but if you'll notice on my computer there i put that up just today and what the note says on top of my computer is hashem is listening to you too now why did i do that this morning because I forget that when I was reviewing my day yesterday, you know, I, I I said some things that were inappropriate as I'm breaking new habits. So even though I intellectually know these things to be true, they're not integrated 
into the way I'm living my life here and is in this world where you come closest to God, which means taking the idea and actually changing who you are as a result of it, which is basically what you're saying. It's it's that whole transformative effect. That's what brings the closeness to God. But again, so it's like it's an intellectual level. You're changing how you think and you're changing how you behave. It's both parts of what happens with Torah. It's teaching you how to think. How to, it's teaching you how to see how to hear, how to listen to the nuances, to the giving you eyes to see. It's giving you ears to hear. It's giving you a mind to think with crea- with clarity and not to leave things just fuzzy. And all of that is one sense. And then when you bring it into your life, that's a that's a whole extra level of changing how I interact with others, how I behave how I talk. That's a whole, that's, that's both of those factors are really what's, what's happening when you are Torah, when you're with Torah, when you're connected to Torah. Right. Okay. That, that, that's great. Now, I feel like there's a few little outstanding items I need to wrap up and package into this episode. One is the Midrash. I'm still not clear on where that came from and how it ended up becoming written down so we could read today and get greater insights into what was happening in each of the Parshas. Okay. If you remember, we had the one word that connects. So it was the Pardes. The Pei is Pshat, simple. Rem is Hint. Daladi is Drush. In the Drush, there's two components. There's the, it's called Midrashe Halacha, and then Midrashe Agada. They're both drawing their sourcing from the text. That's what drush means, to draw, really, to seek out. That's what lidrosh et Hashem means, to seek out God. That's the root of seeking. So you're seeking from the text some information or, or understanding. There's, I'm seeking law from the text, based on the hermeneutical principles, or I'm seeking agada, which is the story. I'm seeking insight into the story. And basically, when you look at Midrash, you're going to see the Midrash that you're talking about, which is coloring the experience of the story. They're focused primarily on the narrative and based on use of words, common use of word here and there, there's an insight into what really happened. Okay, so you're talking about post the 40 years in the wilderness, now they're in Israel. Because the way the written text is written, they were able to extract that. I can't tell you which way it went. Okay. Was it they heard it from their teachers and they saw it in the text? Or they saw it in the text and they figured it out that way? I'm not sure how that Gaddick section worked. I can't tell you which direction it was. It's very possible that this, the, that this was strictly in an oral tradition. Oh, let me tell you exactly what happened at, at, at when we crossed the sea. Oh, there was... There was fish, you know, uh, there was this experience. There was amazing things. And they, the father passed it down to his child. The mother told the story at bedtime. And then it went down, and then it became written. But it was all hinted at in the text as well. Okay, all right. That, make, that makes sense. Obviously, they're going to be recording all the events as they come and telling and, and explaining them generation after generation until they got recorded. Okay, my other question is, and you, you touched on it to some degree, but but the the author of the Zohar, Shimon. Rav Shimon Bar Yochai, 
We learn is that he hides in this cave with his son, I think for 13 years. And he is receiving and basically visited by, I believe it was the Elijah the prophet. Is that accurate? That, that, so here's, here's my question. So you have this text that's part of the Torah, but when you read like where he was getting this information from at, at such a high level, there's no third-party verification. Where did that come from? Is that also all, it's all tied into the, I guess it is all tied into the Parsha too, because if you read the Zohar, it's... Everything's the, everything connects back to the text. I okay. just want to clarify something. I want to share with you an insight that I read somewhere and it, made, it spoke to me a lot. So this is a passage from Rav Tzadok HaKohen. He was an 18th century Talmudic scholar turned Hasidic rabbi. Okay, so he started in one world and sort of through life experiences ended up in another world. And he wrote a book. And uh, it was called Tzidkas HaTzadik, his play on his name of Tzadok. Okay, and in there he writes, I mean, his knowledge of Talmudic texts was phenomenal. And he brought everything that he learned to bear on an insight that he had. And he ties things together in such a creative way that just always spoke to me. So he explained, and to me this is really touching on the question with Rav Shem He explains that the secrets of the Torah is sometimes the Torah's whisper to the ear of the one who studies it. And just like when there's tremendous love between people, they share secrets with each other. So that love of someone's dedication to Torah, the Torah is loving him back as well and whispers in his ear some insight in the Torah. And to me, that's really touching on one of the, what you're really bothered by is like, sort of like, like well, how did, how did he figure that out? Okay, And the answer is, is that, well, it's, that supreme dedication to Torah of 13 years in a cave with him and his son of total focus is going to create a connection in such a deep, deep way that it's going to, they're not just going to be, it's not them digging the Torah. When you're digging to understand the Torah, Torah is digging back to connect to you all as, as well. And that's really, that's really how the idea is, the secrets of the Torah are sort of, there, it's an insight that's granted due to someone's tremendous love of Torah and dedication to it, that they're just given that, you know, sixth sense of a deeper meaning. And it's also tells us, Sod Hashem Lireav, the secrets of God are to those who fear Him, which is that connection of, 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 of the, the relationship that the person has to, and the experience of recognizing God's greatness is such that that right away grants a person greater insight into the secrets of, of Hashem. And that's what the Talmud does. In many passages talks about that and says how, you know, well, how did, how did he know this? How did this rabbi, I mean, this is not written anywhere. Where did he get that? And it says, oh, Sod Hashem Lireyev. It describes a picture, a description, just to give you the example, remembering now one of the passages is that there was one physical question about an act of relations and it was a rabbi who never got married who gave the insight. And he's like, well, he never experienced that. Like, how, how does he? And the Torah tells us, well, so Hashem li The secrets of God are to those that fear him. So he was given, granted an insight. 
So that's really, to me, uh, the answer. Thank you, Rabbi. Anything else you want to add? I just think this was so much fun. <laughs> and I enjoyed. It's a great, uh, great experience. I hope I've answered the questions that you have. And um, if any of your listeners has questions, you can get it back to me. I don't claim to know all the answers, but I do think about these things. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you can't tell, I, it, it speaks to me, these very questions, and that's why I spent time on it. And uh, so hopefully it uh, found favor in your eyes. Absolutely. And I'm thrilled that you enjoyed it, had fun with this, because I absolutely enjoyed it. And I hope that means that you'll accept an invitation to come on again. Answer my next question. There's always another one right around the corner. That's the beauty of it. There's always something to think about. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.